Well, come on back and uh, grab a Bible. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and Steve will get you one or Libby, somebody, uh, Robin, somebody will get you a Bible. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we're going to travel today in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10. But before we do that, we'll wind up chapter 9, I guess. But, um, you know, last week we talked about grace giving, and we're giving people because God has been so gracious to us, but guess what, folks? I forgot the punchline. <laughs> that's, right, that's funny. I forgot the punchline. So I'm going to read you the punchline today as we continue on through 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And the punchline is this, Psalm 24, verse 1, about grace giving. We're now in the place of grace giving. We're givers because we're new creations in Christ. And one of the things, or one of the major things that would help us to be grace givers is to recognize this, that the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the waters. In other words, the Lord is sovereign over the earth, he created the earth and everything in it including your money, which is a real liberating experience. It's not your 401k. It's not your savings account. It's just what you're a steward over. You've been given those things by God. And so now, when it comes to giving, we talked about it. How are you a hilarious giver, a joyful giver? You ever had a tight budget and then, you know, showed up at the church and the plate comes across your lap? And if you say you didn't flinch, I would say you might be not telling the truth. And yet, Psalm 24 tells us that everything we have, everything we are, is due the Lord, is because of the Lord, including our money, Including, I, I got to say this for us helicopter parents in here. Did that just turn off? <clears throat> Your kids are the Lord's. I mean, we say they're ours, and they are in a sense, but they're the Lord's. You, you get them for 18 years or whatever, hopefully 18 Sometimes it's longer than that. <laughs> but you have 18 years full of seminary. <laughs> it's a seminary for 18 straight years, and then they're off doing the things that the Lord has called them to do. See, because you're just the steward of your kids. You're a steward of your homes, your cars, your things. You're just a steward of these things. And when you recognize that and remember that, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 come into real sharp focus. Last week we talked about excellence in giving as Christ is our pattern. We sort of skipped over verses 16 through the end of the chapter in chapter 8. And that's this, that Paul was concerned about the Jerusalem church. There had been a famine, there had been some other things, and they were in desperate times. And so Paul, in the church at Greece, asked for a collection, and other churches, and there were many reasons for this. One was that they were just hurting. They needed the funds to operate, and the Jerusalem church had been the source of their spiritual life. Out of that came all of these people who shared the gospel around the ancient world. And so Paul thought it was their privilege and duty to go ahead and 
pay them back. What's really interesting about it is you see in that what the grace of God does to people. It makes people others-centered. We see a need, we're called by God to meet that need, and we're excited to meet that need. By the way, rabbit trail, you can't help everybody. If you think you can help everybody, well, you just can't. You, you only need to help the people that the Lord calls you to help, just like Jesus did at the pool. There were multitudes of sick people. God, call, God the Father called Jesus to heal. It astounds me when I think about it. One. So you don't have to get guilty, have a guilt trip laid on you because, you know, you know, you know, Ernie over there is going and helping the homeless every week and the Lord hasn't called you to that. Well, that's because the Lord has different things for you. You don't have to be on a guilt trip. You don't have to help and save everybody. You save and help the ones the Lord calls you to look to, see, meet the need, and go and do it, right? You get it? So Paul was excited about this, and this extended not only to the churches in northern Greece, but to this church, Corinth, the Corinthian church, in southern Greece. And Paul says this in verse 16 of chapter 8, thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. And remember, last week, I went through those verses and I showed you how financially, uh, they had financial integrity. They assigned three people to the collection of this fund so that there was no funny business with the fund. He trusted each of the three, but he knew that there was going to be an appearance of impropriety of just one person counted and carried the money, so he put together three. We talked about that. And then chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 5, it talks about how Paul and the rest of the saints administered the gift. Read this with me. Concerning the ministering to the saints, verse 1, chapter 9, it's superfluous. I have a tough time saying that, especially on lack of sleep. But anyway, for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go, or to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. And there gives you a little bit more insight there into the offering that was being made that was going to be sent to the church in Jerusalem. And last week we went on, oh, by the way, that tells you that I think... It gives you another principle for giving. It just shouldn't be willy-nilly. You should think about this at home. Pray about it. Think about it. What is God calling me to give, whether in my resources, in money, time, whatever? What is God calling me to give? But one of the uh, principles is that it's prepared out. And another principle is, and we saw this in verse 6 through the rest of the chapter, that we, because the Lord has given us these things, we can be cheerful givers back to him. We respond back to him, and we give, and we give. And now you're saying, okay, get going. <laughs> but that brings us now to 10, 11, 12, and 13. And what I want to tell you about this is this is uh, I've been saying this over the course of the book of Corinthians. We have two letters from the Corinthians, but we think there probably was two more letters that we don't have. Some people believe chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13 is one of those two letters that some of us think we don't have. Does that make sense? And that letter is called the severe letter. I don't happen to be in that camp that thinks this is the severe letter. I think this is just an extension of what he's writing in the second letter. But nevertheless, some people believe 10, 11, 12, and 13 is that severe letter. And I want you just to know that for your own learning. But now Paul comes and there's a great shift. 
And the shift is, Paul is going to really answer additional uh, critics. And Paul probably is answering folks called the Judaizers. And the reason I say probably is because Paul doesn't spell out by bullet point what the criticisms were. What you do see in 10, 11, 12, and 13 is his response to the criticism. Everybody tracking with me? Which means you sort of have to deduce what they were criticizing him about. And we think probably that these people who were really piling on, not just the Corinthian church who sort of piled on earlier in the letter and he was responding to, but these people are called Judaizers. And those are the people that sort of followed Paul around in the churches that he established. And when Paul preached the, doctrines, uh, the doctrine of grace, grace, they would follow around and say, yeah, of course, we believe in grace. And then there would, they would come this really awful word that Judaizers and legalists always add, and that's but. Grace, but. Or grace plus. Or grace in addition to. And so the Judaizers would say, hey, well, wait a minute. You came, uh, we know you're a Corinthian Greek church, but you need to really get circumcised in order to be a true follower of God. You really need to follow this law or custom or ritual to be a real true follower of God. And Paul would say, wait a second. It doesn't matter about the day or the feast. He would say it's all because of the grace of God. You see what I'm saying? And Judaizers really had it out for him. And the first criticism, and it's sort of in my, it's like, it's like, it's like, um, it's like when I read this, it's playing out in my own life just through me reading it. I get fleshly just reading it. And here's what it is. Listen to this. He goes, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. And there's where you can deduce the criticism. Here's what probably the people were saying, especially the Judaizers. They were saying this, <laughs> You really lip off, man, when it's letters. You seem like you're a real bold, courageous guy when you're 2,000 miles away and you write it down with a pen. But when you come here, you don't talk to us like that. You're a wimp. You're a nobody. You're a weakling. Why don't you say it to our face? That's probably what... The criticisms were, most people believe, and look what Paul says, and this is, in my opinion, revolutionary. Paul says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you, and this is why you get the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who I agree, he's sort of saying, in presence am lowly among you, but being absence and bold toward you. Now, what is he talking about? Well, you see, in Corinth, in Greece, you know what was celebrated? Power, not weakness. Olympic Games, uh, competition. If I could get one over on you and beat you at something, I dominated, which means I was better than you, and I am better than you. And, you, you know, even as I'm saying it, sort of, that's how I grew up. I mean, everything was a game. You played checkers in our house, and oftentimes it ended in fights. And sometimes they weren't just verbal fights, if you know what I mean. And you say to yourself, well, that's sick and grotesque. And I would say, yeah, it probably is. But that's how it was. And my self-worth was yours. That's what a lot of people are like. My self-worth was all tied up in whether I could beat you or not. And you say, ooh, that's gross. Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know it is. Try living it. <laughs> and here, people are saying to him, you're a nobody. You, you are a coward. That's what they're saying. 
You're a coward because you'll say it in the letters, but you won't say it to our face. And you know, have you ever had anybody say something like that to you or about you? Oh, I have. <laughs> and, and you know it's not true, but they're saying it. And maybe they're even telling other people about it and whatever. And you know, your natural inclination, according to your old nature, Paul's going to speak about it here in a minute, according to your old nature, your fleshly nature, the, the old man, the old woman, whatever, the old nature... The fleshly inclination is to sort of attack back, right? I mean, you know, I, I don't know, in, in my old life, and maybe even it creeps in now, I mean, you're, you're saying something to me and getting one over on me. You know, in my old life, just sort of, okay, I got gotcha. you, but it would be sticking right there. And I knew that I was going to put it right there, and someday, somehow, it might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but you're going to get it, and I'm going to get you back. Nobody else but me ever do stuff like that. And see, that's the way of the flesh. Paul says, watch this, in answering critics who are really have been harsh with him, I mean, this is Paul, folks, who gave it all up. Everything he was previously, he gave up to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ around the ancient world without a place to lay his head permanently, without the power and prestige that he enjoyed formally. Everything, one thing he said was most important, that's getting to know Christ and to share it with others. I mean, this is Paul, and here you got these people who are coming behind him and trying to upset what he's done. And now he's hearing the criticism. And the natural inclination is to say, okay, I got it. I'm going to get him. But he doesn't say it. <laughs> he says this. He says, I, Paul, myself, I'm pleading with you. That's a word that is the deepest most deep cry of the heart. Don't fight that way, Christians. Here's what we're going to do. Follow my example, Paul says in another letter, as I imitate Christ. As I imitate Christ, so imitate me, Paul says in another place. He says this, I am pleading with you, and here's how I'm going to plead with you. Not by attack, not by manipulation, not by vengeance, not get you back, not to strike back, not to clear up my name or anything. Here's what I'll do. I'll just live in the meekness and gentleness of Christ with you. Wow. So it got me thinking. <laughs> What's meekness? What's gentleness? Does that mean just lay down, let people wipe their feet on you, that sort of thing? I, I don't know, but here's what I do know. Jesus was the ultimate in meekness. And meekness in these uh, Greek words that uh, dis discuss it in the New Testament always means this, folks, power under control. You see, what we want to be, I think, in our flesh is power out of control, lashing back, striking back, getting back, making sure everybody knows it wasn't me, it was them, all of that sort of thing. Here, Paul says, I'm going to plead with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I mean, you can go, can't you? I mean, just... Uh, you know, go to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and you see meekness and gentleness on full display. I mean, first of all, you have a hated people, the Samaritans, or a, she's from a hated people of the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus is also a rabbi. Men and rabbi, or excuse me, men, rabbis, and women weren't supposed to be meeting and, you know, these sorts of things. And, you know, as Jesus was going up to Galilee in that story, 
most of the rabbis would go out and around so they didn't have to go to Samaria. Jesus, interesting, this is grace, took a direct line to Samaria, uh, Samaria or through Samaria to Galilee. And she is a sinner. <laughs> I mean, there's no way else to say it. She's a sinner. But Jesus just converses with her. Gentleness, meekness. He doesn't just show up and say, you know what, you're going to hell. He says, give me a drink. Let's talk. Let's get refreshed together. Let's find out. I feel for you, and I know you're in a predicament, is sort of what he says. He makes a beeline for her in his journey. He's gentle with her. He's meek with her. And yes, he says, I want you to go and sin no more. But he takes time out of his week or day to know her and to hear her story and to talk with her. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. Hey, I I got news for you. In Colossians, I think it's chapter (laughs) 2, We're told to put on Christ with meekness. I think it's chapter 2. I've gone blank. I'm going to look it up right in the middle of the sermon. And it is in there. It's in 13, I think, or 312. Yep, there we go, 312. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. These are all speaking of the ability to bear with people who are unbearable. Are you catching this? And this is Holy Spirit living, folks, because in your old nature, you don't want to do that. I mean, right? And here the Lord says, you're to take off the old nature and to put on the new nature, which is tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. You're to put on the meekness of the Lord. In fact, in the most famous sermon of all, And you probably have uh, memorized this in some respects, either at Sunday school or somewhere else in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus gives these beatitudes. He was seated. His disciples came to him up on a mountain. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then here you go. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And you keep going on. Or Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The merciful, they'll get mercy. Pure in heart, they shall see God. Peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we've gone through this. I don't think, personally, the Beatitudes are something you do. Now listen, I'm saying it on purpose. I believe the Beatitudes are something you are in Christ. It's a way different thing. And when you're walking according to the Spirit, it's not that you are mourning so you'll get comfort. It's because you're a new creation that you mourn over your sin and for other, with other people that you get comforted. You get the difference? And here he says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. You mean if I produce meekness in my life, then I get everything? No, you're a new creation, so you will be meek. And you're going to live with Jesus, rule and reign with him right here on this earth in the millennial kingdom. Amazing stuff. And why am I telling you all this? Well, here you go. I mean, there's nothing so much that upsets somebody that's walking in the flesh as somebody criticizing them. Am I right? 
and especially spreading it around to people, and especially being, being vicious about it, and these people apparently were. And Paul says, hold on now, we fight differently. <laughs> we don't fight according to the weapons of the world or to the ways of the world or according to the old nature. No, we fight with the meekness and gentleness, not that you produce, but that Christ produces in you. It's his life in you. In fact, the Bible tells you us that you and I and we in Christ, listen to this astounding truth, have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. Wow. So he says this. He says, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. And I always laugh at this one. I think it's funny, sort of. Because in my flesh, don't you try to organize your arguments to show the people that they're wrong? Paul goes, I'm coming to you in meekness and gentleness, and oh, by the way, you're right. (laughs) In the sense that he just agrees with his adversaries there. He just says, well, well, you're right. I don't really enjoy coming to you face to face and tearing you up. I have to. Because you've made some mistakes in the Lord, and so I'm going to write them out. But it, it seems to me, at least according to my reports that I'm getting, that the church in Corinth are doing things about what we've written about and have repented. And so, yes, I do write some harsh things that are what you would consider harsh, but I'm doing it out of a spirit of love. And So I do write those things, and when I come to you, I can rejoice with you and hug you and say, I love you, and I'm so happy that you're growing in these areas. Do you see why he would agree with them? And so he does. He just says, yeah, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. And that's his way of saying, I agree. I have been harsh in my letters, but the whole purpose of it is so that there will be repentance so when I come to you, we can just rejoice and get along. Because, But some folks, I'm not going to be able to do that with, Paul says. I'm going to have to talk to those who are the Judaizers or others who are changing the gospel of Christ. Then he goes on in verse 3, he says, Well, at the end, he says, as if we walked according to the flesh. And now he's introducing something to you that you must know. The Bible tells us that outside of Christ, so if you don't know whether you are in Christ or not here today, the Bible tells us that you, and then, by the way, all of us, have a sin nature. You're a sinner by nature and by deed. You have a sin nature, but you also commit sin which makes you a sinner by nature and by deed. You're guilty before God. And so was I once. And so all of us were once. The Bible actually says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there's a gospel answer for that. There's a response that the Lord gave in grace He says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. You have fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount responded to a question of how perfect that you had to be to get into heaven. Jesus said something so startling, I can remember even as a kid reading it and going, hold on here. And the answer to how perfect must I be to get into heaven is you must be as perfect as your Father in heaven. You say, well, I can't do that. Well, neither can we. And that's why we sing those songs we sang this morning. I, Jesus is our plea. You guys ever been in a courtroom? It's tense, man. Especially criminal court. You're standing up there. In my case, I stand there with some criminals. <laughs> but I'm a criminal too, but uh, you you know what I'm saying. I've been there with some criminals, and it's tense. They're excited or, you know, nervous. The families are nervous. The judge says something. How do you plead? That's the indictment. Here comes the full force of the government against your client or you if you're there for a criminal case. The full force, and here it comes when he says, how do you plead? He 
not guilty. He's telling you, right before you plead, he's saying, well, you're being charged with this crime and this crime and this crime. That's due process. You need to know that the full weight of the government is coming against you. How do you plead? And all of us say not guilty, and then we try to go figure out how to win the case. But in the courtroom of God, you see, it's incredible. Our plea is always and forever the same. In the courtroom of God, you're guilty. There's no question you're guilty. We all know it. The Bible says it. And there's only one way out, and the plea is Jesus. So you just say, how do you plead? Lord says, how do you plead? We just say, Jesus. Nothing we've ever done could get us out of this predicament, which is death, spiritual death, if we don't fall or if we don't uh, match up with G- or God's perfection, then if, you, if that's you, if you've never matched up to the glory of God and his standard, or if you haven't matched up to the standard of God, then you've fallen short of the glory of God. I have, and there's only one plea that could ever help, and that's Jesus. Not I'm not guilty, I am guilty, not arguing with the judge, it's Jesus in God's courtroom. Isn't that fascinating? And when you do that, watch this, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, into your spiritual bank account comes the righteousness of God, which means you went from being below the standard to measuring up to the standard, but it was because of Christ that you're counted as righteous. That's why Jesus said, there you go. That's why Jesus said you need to be as perfect as your Father in heaven. It was to startle you, to un- make you understand that you and I and we need a Savior. And so we plea the same plea over and over again. Jesus. So that's it. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. Now, the Bible says and talks about, Paul does, the same writer in Romans talks about it in Romans 6, 7, and 8, and other places, that even though we live and have now have the Spirit of God, that there's this fleshly nature that seems to war against our spiritual nature. That's the ongoing battle of the Christian At any one time, you and I and we as Christians are two things, either walking according to the Spirit or walking according to the flesh. And you can feel it, can't you? Just have somebody gossip about you or cut you off in traffic or beat you in a basketball game. So Paul goes on and says, for though we walk... In the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. In other words, he's saying, if you start to engage with people according to your old nature and a carnal, fleshly, worldly way, you're just doing what the world does. So as a Christian, look at this, you don't war, wage war according to the flesh. Now you say, wait a minute, what kind of war are we fighting? Well, the Bible tells us that we have three enemies as Christians, three, and three only. The world and its system of thinking, which basically just says, you're the most important, you're your own God. That's what the world says. Self. The world, the flesh, that inner struggle, or who? The devil, the enemy, Satan, the enemy of our souls. And all his minions. So we have three enemies. One of them's the flesh. Paul here is talking about it. And he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, the word for warfare right there is a campaign. You get that? And the reason I'm telling you that is campaigns are long and drawn out. (laughs) And I suspect and think that until you go to be with the Lord or he comes back first, you're going to be waging this war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here Paul's talking about the flesh again. The weapons of our warfare or our campaign, we're in a battle, in other words. 
Do you get that? The Christian knows that he or she is in a battle. Someone told me at a men's study about 10 years ago, living the Christian life should be just easy if you're walking according to the Spirit. And I went, really? And I'm the pastor. You're in a war. We're in a war. And what, is there, what are we warring over? The lives and souls of men and women, boys and girls. There's a war raging for our souls, for our lives. Satan, the enemy, knows that we, he's defeated. He knows it. But until he's judged and put away, he's going to try and drag every last person he can down with him. And so there's a fight for your soul. And the weapons that we fight with aren't what you would think. That's what Paul's saying. They're not carnal. They're not the fleshly things. It's not the attacking back. It's not the uh, criticizing people. It's not the uh, getting on Facebook and telling everybody how terrible they are because they disbelieve the exact political view you believe. That's carnal thinking, folks. Just got to say it. Are you allowed to have a political opinion? Of course you are. But to hate other people, come on now. We don't have weapons that are carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Strongholds. Do you know that our enemies try to get a stronghold? One of my kids love going to REI and climbing, well, they all did, and climbing that rock wall. And it's not really that tall. You look up there and you go, I could do that in about two seconds, no problem. You don't even, I don't even need the rope for that. And then you get on that wall. And then it's a different story. But the REI girl or guy who climbs that thing, they just need that little sliver and they go, Tunk. and they put their little toe out there and you're like, Tunk. I mean, it's like stuck right there. And then they climb right up, bing, they ring the bell. All they need is a stronghold a toehold, a foothold, just something little. And that's what this is saying. That if we fight warfare, we're fighting to pull down strongholds, just a little toehold. The enemies of your soul are going to look for just a little thing to get their foot in there. What is it? Is it that TV show you say is innocuous but has bikinis in it? What is it? I mean, come on, I'm just watching the show. I mean, it's just the show. In fact, honey, come watch it with me because there's nothing to hide here. And yet, what's waging in the battle of your mind is something different. Or maybe it's, you know, at the prayer meeting and you have to explain to everybody all the gossip that's going on in the church so that we can pray about it when reality is you're loving the gossip. It's like footholds, man. They've cloaked that one in religion or spirit, spirituality. He'll, he'll get a foothold to bring you down. But see, what are weapons for? They're to pull down these strongholds. To make you aware that there is even a stronghold. Are you getting that? The weapons that we use are first to make you aware that there's a stronghold an argument, or a high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Like, for instance, weird stuff like this. This is how my mind thinks. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. Remember McDonald's had that commercial, you deserve a break today? Remember that? And you got a Big Mac and a Coke and a fry. You deserve it, man. And it's like all that advertising there is setting you up to, like, you deserve this, and you deserve this car, and you deserve that. It starts with Big Macs, and it goes to, like, Lamborghinis, right? See, that's a foothold. Because the Bible says you deserve hell. That's the one thing you deserve. And praise the Lord, he gives us his son Jesus so that we don't go to hell. But that's what he says. You deserve a break today? Really? And, and I know that's something silly, but see, that's just a little stronghold on the wall of climbing high in pride or in setting yourself up as the God of your own world 
So there are these weapons that are to take down strongholds, and they're to cast down arguments. What are arguments? It's every high thing that exalts itself above God. Is there anything wrong with being intellectual? No, man. Go study for the glory of God if that's what God has called you to. But see, people say stuff like this. Science disproves God. Well, that's an argument against the honor and glory of God. No. Do we reject science? Of course not. We say it supplements the Lord's plan or philosophies. All these grand and glorious philosophies or all these grand and glorious critiques of who God is and these arguments and every high thing, these prideful things that rise up and say, we're going to overtake God. It may be not say that, but I mean, come on, you get into things like cloning and euthanasia. And now you're sort of impeding on God's realm, his sovereignty, his kingdom, the areas that God is supposed to rule, right? And the Bible says here, instead of going, uh, you know, and with a flamethrower and just wiping these things out, we're to fight against them, not in a carnal way, but a spiritual way. We have weapons strongholds, and we're to use them to resist these things against strongholds or arguments or any high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And I want you to notice things. You say, well, wait a minute, where's this war raging? Where is this war raging? The next part of the verse tells you, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Guess where the war is raging? There. in the ideas and the things that we think and the strongholds and the arguments and the high things. And so, what are some of the things that we could do? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is we need to be aware of them. (laughs) We need to submit ourselves to the Lord and start to understand what the Word of God says. The best way is to understand the Word of God. And oh, by the way, I know my Sunday school coloring stuff, Ephesians 6, the sword of the what? Spirit. It's the word of God that slays these things. So here you go. you got a Holy Spirit inside of you, Christian, who takes the word of God. You don't listen to what everybody thinks about the word of God. You yourself know the word of God. And when you are walking through life, you're able just to recognize a stronghold in your life. You're honest with yourself or honest with God. You confess it. You say, Lord, I struggle in this area, man. Help me. Here's where I'm weak. I know it. Lord, is there any other stronghold that people are trying to put, you know, enemies are trying to put their foot into to climb up on me? And overtake me. And you ask him and you say, where is that? And then you're honest with yourself. You don't say things like, oh, I'm Irish. I have, a, I have an anger problem. No, you say, I'm a sinner. And I get mad at the wrong things. You don't say and make excuses for your sin. You don't make excuses for your weakness. No, you agree that you have that weakness. Because as Beck was telling us through the scriptures, when you are weak... He can make you strong. So you, you acknowledge these things. You search the scriptures and then you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal through the scriptures, where are you weak? Where's a stronghold that the enemy could get a hold of in my life? Where is that? Help me to know it, Lord. And then, where are the things where I argue or I'm convinced is right and it's not according to the word of God? And where are other people bringing these things to me? And recognize them when they come into your life. Recognize them when you think them yourself. And is there any other thing that in my life 
that exalts itself against the knowledge of God? Is there any other thing in my life, or is other people bring, or are other people bringing to me those things? I don't want to buy into them. Lord, help me as I study the scriptures to know what's right and what's wrong. You see, you've just done it now. As you become aware of them and as you search the scriptures and pray to the Holy Spirit, or pray for the Holy Spirit to uh, 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 reveal these things in your life and teach you these truths, guess what you've just done? You've begun to take the thoughts captive in your own mind. The problem becomes is when you're glossed over and you don't even recognize it. That's the problem, and that's the scheme of the world. How deceptive is that advertising? Here's another one. This one bugs me. I go off about this every four years or so. You see it even now. I mean, what are dads supposed to be like? The Bible sort of spells it out. You watch those shows like According to Jim. It is funny, got some great humor in it, but what's it attempting to do? It makes the dad look like a buffoon. And all he wants is sex or, you know, easy time with the kids. You take care of the, I don't want to take care. All, and it makes him, and it's funny. We laugh about it. It's real seductive. And right there, right in front of your eyes, you're piping it into your house, is a half-hour show on the worst possible father that there could be. And we all laugh about it. <laughs> Those are arguments against the Lord. Those are, you get it? And it's just constant. It's in our entertainment. It's in our literature. It's in our music. It's in our social media. It's everywhere trying to bombard you with all these things. Man, how important it is for us to fight with the weapons of our warfare. And the first thing I think you need to do is you need to be aware of it. And I believe the Bible talks about it because the Bible says that you and I and we are to rightly divide the word. You're to take it in and then think about it and know it. In fact, in Hebrews 4, it says that the Bible is a double-edged sword able to cut, cut things up and dissect and do uh, surgery between the worldly things and the spiritual things, right? So I think those are some of the weapons. And as you move over into Ephesians 6 and learn about the weapons, you know there's other things there. Righteousness and truth and the gospel. And we're to, supposed to build ourselves up in those each and every day so that when we walk out in the world, we're armored for what we're participating in. We're called to fight. Not just any fight, but the good fight. So we're to bring these thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience which you're, when your obedience is fulfilled. <laughs> Be vigilant against it. It's so funny. We love, don't we, to point out the sin of others. Oh, man, did you hear that person today? I can't hardly believe that. And here what Paul's saying is you be prepared to speak to your own sin. Well, Paul goes on and he says this, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is, in, or he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. <laughs> Such a nice way of being diplomatic and truthful with his enemies. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, it's almost satire here now. <laughs> it's not satire, but it almost is. And he's saying, you know, you folks think you're part of the body of Christ. Remember, we're part of the body of Christ. Why are you lashing out like this? If anyone is convinced in himself that he's Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak 
and his speech contemptible. And that had to really hurt. Uh, There's some extra biblical sources that talk about the appearance of Paul, and it's not really flattering, uh, the extra biblical information. And I'll just leave it at that. I mean, he wasn't any great shakes to look at. And so they're really, in their letters, pouring it on here. If you're saying that, look, verse 11, let such a person consider this, that we are in, or in word by letters when we are absent, which we will also be indeed when we are present. In other words, he's saying, I'll say the things to you if I have to when I get there. But I'd rather not. I'd rather we have repentance and reconciliation, and when we come together, we're good. One other thing I want you to show you something about the authority of the people in the church. Look over in verse 8 again. Even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, he's not boasting like, hey, look, I'm Paul. I am better than you, and I set up the church, so you just need to sit down and be quiet. That's not what he's saying here. He's just saying, listen, this is what God called me to. I was called to teach and to strive and to strain and pour out my blood, sweat, and tears. That's what I was called to. And under that authority, that's what I did. But I want you to know something, Paul says. Everything we've done, all that we've done, is not to give you some power trip or some authority structure that you can examine and look at in management classes. Everything that we've ever done, Paul says, is because we wanted to build you up. And sometimes, isn't it true, when people can't see what's going on in their lives, the people who are helping them spiritually have to, need to, suggest to them that there is this thing that's going on that they can't see. It's sort of in their blind spot. And Paul had to do that. And what he was saying was, I never did it because I wanted to tear you down. None of our ministry team did it because we wanted to tear you down. We always did it because we wanted to build you up. That's what he said leadership was about. And that's sort of hopefully what we try to do. We take it seriously when it says that the leaders of the church are to be helpers of your joy. We're not here to lord things over you. If there's sin in the camp, yes, we have to deal with it. But we, we want you to be helpers of your joy so that you can joy and rejoice out in the world. Look going on. He goes on in verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measure themselves by themselves (laughs) and comparing themselves among themselves. (laughs) Is that a run-on sentence? Are not wise. He acknowledged even back then, probably against the Judaizers who were coming back around. You know what the Judaizers like to do? They like to take from the existing church and start their own churches. That's what they like to do. And what Paul's saying here is, hey, folks, we're not in competition with other churches. We don't want to... In fact, we're not going to compare ourselves with another church. Oh, the church that's down the street has 8,000 people, and they're ministering to people, and people are getting saved. Let's call a meeting and see how we can get to 8,000 people. Mm -mm. What Paul is saying is, praise the Lord for them, and thank the Lord that the Lord is calling people to the gospel through that ministry that he's established. But see, if we compared ourselves to them, we'd be in dire straits, because we'd be in ulcers. We'd have ulcers and be in knots all the time. Lord, why are you blessing them with 8,000 people, and here I am just talking to whatever, you know? Why why that? If you did that, you'd be in knots. He says it's not appropriate. That's something that's really carnal. So don't do that. Don't measure yourselves by themselves. That's not wise. We, however, verse 13, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which includes you. So beautiful. God called us to the Corinthian church, Paul says, so we're just going to stay in our lane. (laughs) 
How did I get that phrase in the sermon? But anyway, so we're going to just stay in our lane. You've called us to this, Lord. You've asked us to come here. That's what we're going to do. We don't have any delusions of grandeur for ourselves or for our glory. We're just going to do what you've called us to do. And if that's this and that, and it remains little and small, praise the Lord. That's our sphere. Thank you, Lord. And that's what he says here. That other way of thinking is really, really carnal. For we, verse 14, are not overextending ourselves as though our authority didn't extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in your sphere. I mean, this is the classic verses on church stealing. I mean, this is it. We're not interested in going down there and telling your people how terrible the pastor is, so maybe they'll come down this way, put more people in the box, more money in the box. We're not interested in any of that. Whatever the Lord's called us to, you know what Paul says? I just want to focus on that and the people who are there, the people. Just focus on the people and pour into men and women's lives. And then they'll, their faith will be enlarged and they'll go out and do their ministry as they're equipped. That's what Paul is saying. It's so beautiful. See, that other way of thinking, which is so prevalent in the church, isn't it? Anybody been involved in this? That other way of thinking is total carnal church marketing inappropriate, worldly stuff. What do we got going on back there? ESPN. ESPN. That, that, anyway, da, 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 da. Well, we'll go on. (laughs) We're not overextending ourselves. We're not boasting of things beyond measure that in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we'll be greatly enlarged by you, by people in your sphere, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. I mean, come on. I hate it when people come in here and say, man, there weren't that many people at church today. I just hate it. You know why I hate it? Because people were at church today. So don't worry about the people who aren't there. I mean, worry about them in the good sense, but you know what I mean? Don't worry about who's there and who's not there. This is who the Lord has put in front of you to minister to. Do it with all your might, you know, according to the Spirit. Hope, you know, you just never know. What the Lord's going to do in and through whoever is here. You're important, and that's what Paul's saying. It doesn't matter how big you are. It's what you're doing with what you have as a steward. Are you pouring into the people? And are we as people growing and seeking out our ministry? That's what he's saying, because Paul was praying that as he poured into you, you'd go out and do your ministry. You don't need the pastor to do your ministry. You go out and do it. And then just the ripple effect of just that, just in this little peewee little fellowship, if we would just share and share and build up and disciple, wow, until the Lord comes, look what would happen. And then he says, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, you might not know this, or maybe you do, But he's quoting from Jeremiah 9, which is very interesting if you go to Jeremiah 9. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Verse 17 of that chapter, he's uh, talking about Jeremiah 9, verse 24. I hope I can get there. I'm having trouble. Okay. Let's go in 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. 
Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Isaiah 42.8 actually says that the Lord won't give his glory to another. Now, are you catching what he's saying? But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Forget riches. Forget fame. Forget intellectual pursuit. Nothing wrong with being smart. Forget all the mightiness that the world offers. Forget all those things. And then glory in the Lord. What does glory mean? Ascribe praise and honor and blessing to the Lord. And the only way you'll do that The only way you'll do it, I think, is if you know that you're a sinner and then you've been saved by grace. That's the only way. The depths from which he saved us. The Bible says in Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins, raise your hand if you've ever sinned, the soul that sins shall surely die. And the Bible doesn't describe us as being basically good. That's an argument against the gospel. The Bible describes us as sinners in need of a savior. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sins and saved from the death of eternal separation from God and go to be with him forever. And in that, look at this, in that is what you glory Not that I've been successful in business, I've obtained my master's degree, I have a great house, amazing family. Some of those things can be good, but no, you confess that you'll be, you're a sinner, that you can be saved. You will then glory in the Lord. Jeremiah 9 there is very telling. You could even say, or read on and go, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. (laughs) You know what, folks? You know what would help us all? I've started with me. When there's people up against you, and they're attacking, and they're hurtful, and they're mean, If you'd understand and we'd understand that where we're to gain our approval is from the Lord himself and not men. Boy, would that help. And as you look back over this chapter, especially this end chapter from 12 through 17, you could start to say to yourself things like this. Am I where the Lord wants me? He's called me to this. Have I overextended myself? Am I reaching out? Who am I to say that? But anyway, am I reaching out into an area that that's not where I'm called? Stick to where I've been called. Is there anything wrong if the Lord's calling you to reach out in faith to start a home fellowship or do something? No, maybe the Lord's called you to that. Do it. But you don't have to do everything everybody else is doing. And you don't have to compare yourself with others. Is there somebody in the fellowship you always look and say, why is that person doing things? And I'm never, don't do it. Don't engage in that. Engage in what the Lord has for you. And then the last thing you would just ask in your life, can the Lord commend you for the work that you're doing? Would he commend you for it? Is that the thing he wants you to be doing? Oh, man. What a way to live in freedom. That's what it is to be free right there. Knowing that you know that you know you've been called by God out of sin 
to life, and he set your feet upon the rock, and now he's made a way for you to minister in this certain area or that certain area, whatever it is, and no matter what anyone says or criticizes you about, you're free. Because you know that's what God has for you. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here this morning and we're thankful for this word. And wow, Lord. I confess here amongst the brothers and sisters that I often find myself going down the path of fighting with carnal weapons. <laughs> Lord, I want to be a person who, with the peace and security that you give in you, to fight according to the spiritual weapons. So, Lord, help us all to do that by your Spirit. And, Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray that they would come up after and talk. And we could pray together. There's somebody here that's been fighting carnally but wants to fight spiritually. May they come up too. If there's somebody here who's having problems taking thoughts captive for you, Lord. I pray that they would come up here and we could pray together. Lord, I just ask that you bless this people this day and always as they go out and love the hurting and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.